Forgot to give you the, the mic here. All right, Hans, he's been with us before, and so I really appreciate having you here. If I can get in without knocking my mic off. Uh, so I always like to start, well, let me just start with prayer. How please, about that? Please. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your generosity and goodness in our own lives. We thank you for the work that you're doing in our community through the Lighthouse Mission. And thank you that Hans can be here with us and for the staff that serves with him. And we just ask that you would speak through him now. You would uh, speak to our own hearts surrounding the whole issue of, of recovery and restoration and the work that you do. Whether we start on the street or start in a home, Lord, we all need recovery and restoration and healing. So I just ask that you would speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I always like to do when we interview someone is just start with who you are. And I've always wondered why you have a hyphenated last name. So I have. So, <laughs> I know. that's It's, it's a, a stage name. Okay. It's no, your stage I, name. No, so my kids sound like little law firms when they say their name. But no, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, it's worth maybe, 800 points in Scrabble. Maybe. Okay. If, you know, if it's a long story. <laughs> it's a long, I just have always wondered. Story. Okay. It's a long it's story. It's a long story. He has a hyphenated name. We're just yeah. going to accept it. Yeah. Okay. Tell us a little about who you are, where you grew up. So I grew up in Bellingham. I'm a fourth-generation Bellinghamster. My great-grandparents had a farm out where the old Costco used to be on the Guide Meridian there. And uh, my grandparents uh, had a bakery-dairy drive through for any of you old-timers over on Garden Street. Uh, so what was it called? I think it was the Garden, Garden View Bakery or something like that. I, I, anyone know? I don't know. I no one wants to admit their age. All I remember. Never heard of it. Is right? when I was like four years old, they gave me a Tootsie Roll when I drove through. That's the only thing I remember. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I grew up here in, in, in Bellingham and went to school here and, and uh, ended up in Seattle for a couple of years, Vancouver, BC for a couple of years, and now I've been back ever since. Okay. Tell us about your family a little bit. Your... Yeah, my wife, uh, Janelle, my kids, uh, Cora and Apollo, 10 and 8 years old, and... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a joy to be in this community raising these kids and seeing them thrive and all that. It's just a, like I said, it's a gift. It's, it's a great place to be in the Northwest. Yeah. Tell us a little, your story of meeting Jesus. So I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up over at Hillcrest Church on the south side. And uh, I remember my conversion moment was when I was five years old. My mom was reading me the book of Matthew. And, and uh, I'm like, can I... Can I ask Jesus in my heart? She's like, absolutely. And I remember, you know, praying with my mom. And I remember hearing her run down the hall afterwards to tell my dad how excited she was and mm. that her son had given his life to Christ. And for me, it's a perpetual conversion, of course, as usually it is, because none of us has fully arrived. Um, but, but, yeah, I, uh, you know, grew, growing up over the years, my faith became my own, I think, in the midst, not just my parents' faith, became my own in the midst of tragedy, working at Camp Furwood, a fellow counselor in training, uh, Got, he died in a car accident on the on the the furs, and I um, really had to deal with suffering and grief. And is this mm-hmm. is this Jesus real? And mm-hmm. that's where I really sunk in that no, this Jesus is very real, and mm-hmm. I need him. Mm. Yes. Well, when did you or why did you start working at the Lighthouse Mission? Like when and why? You could give us the, the yeah. I mean, 16 years ago, I started there as a chaplain, and kind of a roundabout way of getting there. I um, was working, I studied international business at Western, 
I was working in sales for this tech company down in Seattle and, and uh, wasn't loving tech stuff, but uh, really wanted to know my faith on a deeper level intellectually. And so I went to seminary up in Vancouver, a place called Regent College. And there um, I fell in love with the arts, actually, and being able to tell the story of the church at work. And so I started making documentary films and was doing that. And I was wrapping up one film and doing the film festival thing. And I'm like, do I want to move to L.A. or New York? Not really. Uh, and I thought, you know, there's a job that opened up at the mission to be a chaplain. I'm like, man, that'd make a great reality show. That's what oh. I initially thought. <laughs> so, you put that on your uh, application? I didn't say that. Though, okay, but, you didn't but say that's that. That's what I was thinking in my head, you know. And, and so I, um, I got in there, and as I was there, I realized, like, oh, man, like the Lord built me for this kind of stuff. And wow. I started seeing the kind of the emotional beats of my own life my own experiences, friends that have wrestled with addiction, extended family with mental health, all these different things where I'm like, oh, I have a fire in me to do something about this. And the Lord allowed that stuff in my life to put a fire in me to fight for those lives on the street. Mm. And so they haven't been able to get rid of me since. (laughs) When did you become the director? Six years ago. Okay. Yeah, six years ago I... I moonwalked into that boardroom and I flicked a lit cigarette at him and they said, he's leadership material. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you do it, huh? (laughs) That's a joke. I didn't really do that. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, there's some people wondering. Hans was at a men's retreat for his church this weekend and didn't sleep much. So we might we might get the best version of Hans we've ever... You're going to get unfiltered. My apologies in advance. Okay. (laughs) This will live on the internet forever, just so you know. Okay. We can scrub it if we need to. All right, so let's just, before we get into what's happening and plans, let's just talk about homelessness in general. Why, yeah. why is it happening? It seems like it's increasing. I don't know if that's anecdotal, but my eyes think it is no, when I drive true. around town. What's, yeah. what's happening there? So homelessness is a, is a complex thing. I mean, there's so many different things that play into it, societal things, uh, personal things, and... How, and you really have to define it well to know what the proper type of intervention is going mm. to be. And there's a few real commonalities that I see by the time someone gets on the street. One is, it's not a matter of lost resources, really. It's a matter of lost relationships. So the relationships that matter most, that mm. network, that place of connection, being a part of a church community or family community or your workplace or these kinds of things, those have gone away for some reason. Sometimes it's because you feel shame and you want to just isolate and you've hurt people. You don't want to be around people. You're a hermit. Or, or your addiction has become your, your idol. And everything is to, to feed that idol. And, and your family and friends can't take it anymore. And they have to say no more. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's lots of reasons. I mean, there's reasons of homelessness. Domestic violence is the biggest one for women. I think the average age of someone who's homeless in America is like nine years old. Uh, and it's because of all the kids that are in part of families that are finding themselves in homelessness. And so there's a broad, a lot of aspects of society that um, have brought it about. And by the time you're on the street, you're kind of in a fog almost, at least from what I've observed. You're in a fog, and it's hard to really see clearly what's going on and what's going on in your own life, and you're just in hypervigilance mode, and you're just trying to survive an hour out. And you, you can't see the future necessarily, or a vision for the future for yourself. And 
So what we really try to do, and I should say this too, there's the most critical aspect of, of or commonality that I've seen around homelessness is a, a loss of, or a distorted sense of identity hmm. where you see yourself not as how God sees you, but you see yourself as the mistake hmm. or you see yourself as the perpetual victim or you see yourself as the town drunk or you see yourself as these different things, a thief or or what have you, and, and it's not true, but maybe some of those things that you've done are true, but that's not how God sees you. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the work we do is, is reframing a person's identity to the truth. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, honestly, it's pointing people to Jesus and pointing them to the cross mm-hmm. and take your sins there and he will lift them off and he looks at you and he lifts you up and he says, I use broken people to heal my world. I'm going to use you. And when they do that, when they feel that, mm-hmm. that kind of grace, I'm all yours because that's my mm-hmm. story too, right? That's what brought us all to Christ in the first mm-hmm. place. The mm-hmm. reality we can't save ourselves and we're broken and what do we have to offer you, Lord? He says, I'm going to use you. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's, one of the, the deep themes of, of the mission and the work that we're trying to do is that, no, you are valuable because Christ's name is on you. You're his. Your identity isn't these other things. Mm-hmm. You're a child of God. And it's actually, it's almost like the, uh, what was that movie, Toy Story? Remember when uh, Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story, he sees a commercial of himself and he realizes he's not a superhero, he's just a toy. Yeah. He's all broken up about, he's walking around, moping around, and Woody says to him, no, no, look, lift up your foot, what's on your foot? Andy is written on his foot, you're Andy's toy, that's your identity. Mm. You live out your toyness for Andy and you'll be fully who you were created to be. And that's what we're trying to do at the mission. Jesus' name is written on your forehead. That's your true identity. Mm. Why don't people want to go there? Why is there resistance? And, you know, it seems like, oh, you just go here, boom, we get into this. Problem solved. Yeah, why, why isn't, you know, and, um, you know, one of our uh, church members, Christy, emailed in, you know, what about these homeless camps, like the one behind yeah. Walmart, and how do, you know, how do they get from there <laughs> to, your, to the mission, and why won't they go there? And A few different reasons. The number one reason is the, at least from our internal surveys, is that people don't want to have rules. They just don't want the rules. And there's a certain, quote-unquote, freedom on the streets to not do anything. You don't have to worry about, you know, showing up at a certain time or waking up at a certain time or eating meals at certain times or these kinds of things. And that's probably the biggest one. And, um, yeah, let me think. There's... There was something else around uh, why folks won't come in. And I think in large part, too, when you're on the street for a long time, this is for the long-termer folks. Usually if you're like quickly homeless, like any help you can take, you're going for it. But when you've been on the street for a while and you know, you've been through traumas, if you're a female on the street, 100% chance you're going to get sexually assaulted within a few months. Um, you've experienced traumas on the street, you've experienced traumas in your life to get you there. They call it adverse childhood experiences. Um, you've experienced these traumas and it's really hard to trust. Mm-hmm. Can't trust Can't trust the hospital because they're going to put me away against my will. Can't trust the police because they're going to roll me out of the park for the umpteenth time. Can't trust the guy camping next to me because he's going to steal my stuff. Can't trust 
anything that, that suggests authority or professionalism or these kinds of things, even though those things are there to help you, right? Mm-hmm. You can't trust it when you're in that headspace. And so how do you get someone out of the encampment behind Walmart, which is probably the most dangerous one in town? How do you get them out of there or behind Winco or over by Fred Myers on Lakeway or all these, you know, around here even? Like how do you help people get there? Hmm. And at the end of the day, it's, it's building trust with them. Mm. And for us, it's a consistent friendship mm. where we're consistently showing up. Not, you know, and, and meeting basic needs and ministering to pain, really. I mean, you want to grow your ministry, you minister to pain. And that's what we're doing is ministering to pain on the streets. And we're not passing out pain tanks or tents or things like this. They're going to keep people stuck in the woods. But we're passing out the basic needs and we're praying with people mm. and building friendship. And giving the invitation for when they're ready. And then when they are ready, you know, maybe they've almost overdosed, you know, under the, the bridge. Or they got beat up for the umpteenth time. And there's like, something's got to change. They've got the number of our outreach. We'll come pick them up, mm-hmm. bring them in. And they're ready at that moment. Mm-hmm. But it's because of the consistency and the friendship. And they know that we're there to love mm-hmm. them and care for them. Do you think the camp itself creates a kind of community that steps in, even if it's hostile community, or does that not create any of that? It do, I mean, yes, on the surface it does. And yes, there are some actually really beautiful moments that are super humbling for people like me who think they know everything. Um, but uh, the reality is, you know, when you've got really broken people and you put them together without any sort of, um, you know, baseline of truth, mm. uh, you're going to that brokenness is going to magnify. And so that's why you see a lot of bad things happen in encampments. That's why you saw you know, things blowing up at City Hall during the, the protests there a couple years ago now. Um, I mean, the people getting stabbed and all these things that were going on that um, people were not taking human nature into account and are bent towards evil. Mm-hmm. And the Antifa crowd's like, no, no, it's just the systems are causing this. People are inherently good. And from a Christian worldview, we don't say that. We're like, no, people have a bent towards sin, and mm. you have to provide accountability, or you're not going to get change. Mm. And um, and so people, yeah, we're, it just doesn't work in the long haul. But there are some moments of grace, and the Spirit still works, even mm. in, in situations that you couldn't imagine it happening. Mm. Well, let's talk about the mission. If you yeah. want any of these slides to go, sure. just, let's, we can fire them off, but... How does the mission work? What's the big picture? And then we can get more specific from there. But. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, who are the people that we serve? Can I pull one? up that slide? Is that the, this, this one, one there? Yeah. The, the diversity of people is endless and all the circumstances that have them there. I mentioned some commonalities, right? Identity, also a sense of calling or vocation in the broad sense of something that's been distorted if your identity's not right. Um, you don't know necessarily what you're to do with this life. Hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, a lot of it is, is getting the identity taken care of and then saying, okay, what does it mean to be a father? What does it mean to, be, to use your gifts in the world for a job? Or what does it mean to be a renter or an employee? Hmm. Uh, the broad sense of vocation is what you're looking at. And these are real folks right here that stay at the mission or, or out on the streets here in our community. And like I said, it's a broad, broad bunch of folks. The mission... Uh, engages about half the homeless population of Whatcom County every day. And that adds up to be about 2,500 unique individuals every year are coming through our doors. 
How many would, would there count? I know they have that point in time count. What is yeah. the number of on a certain day? Uh, it went few? down recently, but we're not seeing it on the, in our experience because we're turning away people now from base camp due to capacity, whereas we weren't before in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so the point in time count I think is 828 or something like that. Uh, here in Whatcom County, people that are considered homeless, they include our counts from base camp, which is a couple hundred folks that are there. Uh, it doesn't include the folks that are coming in just for the day services, so the medical supports, the legal supports, the, all the different agencies that are there engaging our people. There's probably another hundred folks a day that can come in that are getting meals and that kind of thing, getting haircuts. Um, and so that it's been in that range, though, for a while, okay. uh, around the 800s of, of folks. Um, our, our numbers, we figure there's about 5,000 annually that are, that are experiencing homelessness, either for a couple of days or the entire year. Mm-hmm. just depends uh, where people are, are coming from with that. And so it's a, it's a serious problem. And especially the mission is positioned to, is the main intervention for street homelessness in our community. Engaging the most people, offering the most amount of programming and services and whatnot, and those folks that you see up there are children of God. And they, uh, in many ways, feel very invisible to the rest of the world. And even the guy flying a sign on the street corner, uh, I mean, to get to that point, you feel terrible about yourself. And to be able to, to turn that around is a is a, a mighty work of the Lord working through a staff and a team that they're apprenticed to Jesus and they're going to love that person. Even with when people puff up with street bravado, right? You see that sometimes in the street. The question they're asking you in that is, are you still going to love me even when I show you this? Mm. And I liken folks to being like icebergs. You see the top 10% on top of the surface. The 90% under the, under the surface. I mean, the top 10%, that's how they're dressed. It's how they talk. It's how you're behaving. It's what you see. But the internal life of somebody, the culture of somebody is under the surface of the water. And that's what we have to get at if we're going to see change in a person's life. Mm. That's why I don't care as much about, you know, got to behave this way or that way. It's, it's no, we want your heart. Mm. And we're going to continue to show you grace and tell you the truth and love. But we're going to continue this until you get there. Mm. And for some it takes a long time, for some it's pretty quick. It just depends on the person. But that's, that's in large part that kind of grace and that consistent pressure um, of love toward people despite the, the parts that are unsavory. That's where um, we cannot separate the gospel of Jesus from the services that we offer. Mm. It has to have that level of energy of a team willing to go after the modern-day leper mm-hmm. and love them no matter what. Uh, and they have to feel that and know that, to know their worth. And it's, it's, it's seeing people with Christ's eyes and seeing their true heart and who they are. And you get that, and it happens, and people start to settle. They start to feel spiritually safe, emotionally safe. They're like, this person really does care. Mm. And... Actually, I'm willing to listen now to what they might have to say. Whereas before, you're just in survival mode, you're angry at life, you're scared, all the things. And uh, to get past that is the mm. mighty work of the Lord. 
And that's why we can't take any government dollars because we have to have Jesus be in the mix. More Jesus. That's honestly. right, not less. Huh? And frankly, people, you know, they're dying out there. And so you better make sure they know the gospel uh, because I want to see them in the life to come. And Jesus does too. And so that's why we, we, are, we have evangelism and discipleship as part of what we do. Yeah, you and I talked, and I wanted us all to hear this conversation because you see this push for just just get them in a house, get them in a tiny house, give them an apartment, and I think you called it a housing first option. Mm-hmm. And so that's not what you're doing. So you kind of talk about contrast that. What is that? Why does it, in most cases, not work? Everybody wants to try and figure out how to solve the problem, and at the end of the day, people have different views of human nature and how to solve this problem. And so the one that uh, much of society has uh, kind of resolved to say this solves the problem is kind of a materialist approach. You're homeless? Give them a home. No longer homeless. And we have found that the folks that just go right into a home like that, especially if they're wrestling with addiction, is actually not helpful. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change a life. You've got to change a life. Mm-hmm. So we want to see life transformed. Like it doesn't change a life. It just takes someone who's homeless with all the challenges that brought them to homelessness and puts them in a place where all those challenges are still there. They just have a roof over their head. And so there was a study done in Ottawa on housing first, done in Canada, that showed that people with addiction died twice as fast in those apartments than they did if they just stayed on the street. Mm-hmm. Still going to the soup kitchens and hanging out at the library during the day. Um, they died twice as fast. Why? Because of the loneliness, for one. You're not with people anymore. No one can see you if you're overdosing. You die a lot quicker in that context. And no one has to see it. And unfortunately, that's what happens. And so, that's, But the idea of housing first is, well, if we put someone in a place to live, then they'll want to deal with the issues that are driving their homelessness. And that does happen on occasion. I would say probably 10% of folks in the street that could be a good solution for if they got severe brain damage or different things. They need that kind of solution, and it is a, a dignity uh, for them. Uh, but for the vast majority, I see so much potential. So much potential. And to take that potential opportunity away from somebody, I think, is cruel. And so we have a life transformation model that we use um, that gets someone to a place where one housing is the, the thing that's going to be a part of the recovery program, a recovery solution, then yes, they are ready, and they can keep it mm. and thrive with it. So yeah, here, I'll, I'll hit this slide. Let's just say someone is on the camp to your end slide here, thriving. Like, how do they get from I'm in the camp to I have my own apartment and I'm, I'm contributing a, to society? A thriving place. Yeah. Yeah, this model that you see on the screen, uh, it's our three-tiered model for life transformation. It's what we use. So sometimes, you, you know, with that previous model I mentioned, the housing first, you take someone right off the grocery cart and you put them in a house. Does that solve anything in between? It might keep them safe for a while. It's a short-term solution. It could feel good politically uh, for politicians and things, but does it actually change the life? And we say no. It needs to take these three steps to get there. In general, there's always you know people that can do it otherwise, but generally this is how how it goes. And I liken this actually. I give a, a hospital metaphor. So the outreach for us is 
kind of like the EMTs going out. Someone has a health thing going on. The ambulance is going to get them. They bring them into the ER. Part of our outreach is also our base camp facility on, on Cornwall Avenue. Uh, we bring it, you bring them to the ER, you stop the bleeding, right? And then, once the bleeding is stopped, they're thinking through what next steps are for this person. If addiction is their thing or serious life dysfunction, which is generally the thing, the recovery program is the next step. So you go up three stories of Peace Health, and now you've got a couple of weeks in the recovery program. And you're, you're getting, you know, you're sorting out the things and that got you in your health condition. And then the third tier uh, for us is our restoration tier. And that's where, it's kind of like the outpatient uh, at the hospital. You're still coming in on occasion to do your physical therapy and things like this. But this is like all of life, mm. not just a broken arm, right? This is all of life. And so it's much more involved and takes more time. And it takes a lot of work to get traction, to get on that trajectory. So our recovery programs are in Old Town. Those are the Agape Home for Women and Moms with Kids. Also the Ascent Program for Men. It's a year to a year and a half of going into the deep wounds and the, and the things that you're trying to anesthetize, not feel anymore through whatever life dysfunction that might be, whether it's uh, food addiction or uh, pornography addictions or uh, alcohol and drugs or bad relationships, all these things. You're getting that stuff worked through. And uh, because is there, you're a, doing is there a is there a, like a, a detox part of that or like there's like they're physically coming off of a, an addiction is that there Le- less so there we'll work with the detox place okay. in town if it's you know it's hardcore heroin addict or uh, alcohol kind of things you have to there needs to be a level of stabilization that okay with medical kind of intervention before they get to us. Okay. Uh, so, but we'll work closely with them on that to make sure they have that and then get them right in as soon as possible because okay. it's usually windows of motivation that, that are precious. <laughs> that yeah. We want to make sure they can get in in, in the time uh, that's best for them. And so, but then also, too, when you get into that recovery program, for the men, there's a 30-day blackout period where uh, you've got to turn your cell phone in all those temptations to get a hold of your dealer, things like that. We try and reduce that as much as possible. If you've got maybe a legal appointment you've got to get to, you'll have a buddy go with you to, to continue to keep you safe. So, And then there's, it's a phased program. There's lots of involvement to it. But at the end of the day, you're, dealing, you're getting healing and discipleship. And you're bringing Jesus into those situations when you're being you know, sexually abused. Where was Jesus and what was he saying in that moment? And people really, uh, they, they start to feel the healing of Christ and see him weeping alongside you. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful thing. It's one of those things where, like, man, like, if you got to sit in on some of these meetings with people, you wish you had an addiction. <laughs> it's so rich. The life that unfolds is so rich. And the grace that you feel and the support of, of the, your brothers and sisters that are there that are all in on seeing you come alive, you know? Mm. And so it's a pretty special thing to be a part of. Wow. You better keep talking because I can't right now. <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh. Yeah, and that restoration tier is a critical part of it as well. It's the area we have more room to grow in at the mission. I should say our outreach, we're bursting at the seams. We're turning away two to seven people a night. Uh, at base camp. We just don't have the capacity. Uh, the recovery programs are bursting at the seams. We've got waiting lists at Agape. Um, the need is so great. The restoration tier, that's where people are 
are, once you've got some healing under your belt, you're moving forward, what is it, okay, do I get a job? What does that look like? Should I go back to school? Um, you know, if I'm a mom, how do I get my kids back? Uh, we had nine moms get their kids back at Agape this last year, got their families back, you know. As you pray with people, their heart cry, what they want more than anything is just to have their families back. Mm. They've lost that. And they're so devastated by that. And for some, it's just not in the cards. And so it's creating a family outside. Uh, typically in the church is where it happens best. It's where you come in and come around people and invite them to the barbecues and be a part of their lives, have them in your Bible studies and create that sense of connection and that sense of I'm not alone. If you drive by base camp, you'll see on the fence outside three phrases. And we wrote those phrases on there to speak to those heart cries of, of our people. And the phrases say, I see you. Because so many people feel invisible. This is like the words of God. <laughs> I see you. I love you. So many people feel unlovable. Unlovable. I love you. And the third phrase, I am with you. You are not alone. And when people are able to, to, to really imbibe that and know that they're, all the shame that they carry in those giant backpacks can get lifted off the foot of the mm. cross, and they know that, oh, man, people come alive. Wow. And it's the kingdom, right? And it's like even the folks that feel, you know, they've been living in their schizophrenia for the last 30 years, and they... You know, get stabilized, and they lament the last thirty years of, of, you know, not getting things done like they might hope to. Like, this is the kingdom. This is that's the mustard seed. In the life to come, they're going to be a giant plant, a beautiful flower, right? That's the kingdom. And so, we uh, we see those folks, and they're all mustard seeds, you know. Yeah. And we all, you know, I say this sometimes when I speak places. It's like we just all got into. The Bellingham Bay, we're going to swim to Hawaii. I might get halfway to Lummi Island. I'm a pretty good swimmer. I used to be a lifeguard. You know, I'm not getting to Hawaii. I might have a better backstroke than the next guy. We're not getting to Hawaii. We need Christ to get us there to the promised land. And so there is a great leveling, a great equality, right? Every tribe and nation, every tongue, kneeling before the Lord, Revelation. That's, there's, a, there's a beauty in that. And you start to see people differently. Not just, you know, the victim who needs charity. Like, no, you got something to offer, friend. I, we need you. Yeah. We're not just here to, like, you know, be saviors. We need you. You need to be a part of this. Again, Christ saying, lifting you up. Mm. I use broken people to heal my world. Yeah. You got something to offer, friend. Yes. And then spiritually, I, one of my favorite things is to have, I'll be somewhere, I'll be like, can you pray for me? You know, the spiritual leader guy. Can you, you want me to pray for you? Yes. Yeah. Spirit's working in you too. Pray for me. I need it. Yeah. Well, what's this? Uh, we got a video here. Wanna oh, yeah, that sure. Up? Yeah, yeah what, we got what? a little minute video. We did a, a graduation a couple of weeks ago for our folks in that recovery program. And this is just to soak in the joy of the accomplishment of the, the people feel that have graduated. Just in this short video. Yeah. Sure. In the restoration phase of this, are you actively trying to plug people into churches and the community so they can have a little bit of that restoration as well? Yes. Is that something that you 
please. We absolutely need church partners that, are, that have the grace built let me, in. Let me say the question so it gets in the mic. He asks, in the restoration phase, is, that, is part of that connecting people to a church community? Yes, it is. It actually happens in the recovery stage initially, but it gets fleshed out even more in the restoration stage. And so that's, that ultimately, the church has an incredible opportunity before them to be that at that level. Like some, it's hard sometimes for churches to deal with the brain science around addiction and things like this. You want experts for that sometimes. But man, are they built to be that, that connection point, that restoration that takes people to the long haul. Because it takes probably five years when somebody first gets sober to get to a baseline where like this is, this is going to be for, for the rest of their life in a good place. It takes a long time to get there. And so the church, you've got to walk with folks and be with them and be a part of their lives. And I say this too when I speak places. The opposite of addiction is connection. You create that for people. And they don't want to use because they're full. How would we actually connect to folks? How does, how does it happen? So it happens in a, in a wide variety of ways, usually in the recovery portion of the program. Case managers and chaplains are working to plug people into various churches based on kind of their temperaments and what they like. And evangelical churches, like, we want you in. We want you getting pointed to Christ uh, and him crucified. Like it, it needs to be uh, churches that hold to the authority of Scripture and things like this. Um, and so they do that. And it's usually just one person showing up. Okay. But man, is it hard to show up mm-hmm. when you feel like, oh man, I haven't been stepped foot in a church or are people going to scowl at me when I'm out back smoking and these kinds of things. You've got to be a safe place for them to come in and feel radically welcome. And so if that is something that you have an interest in, like connect, connect with me afterwards and I'll get you connected because when you have a friend that you can go with and enter into this yeah, kind of other world. looking out for you. Someone that's like, sit come sit with me. me. Yeah. You know, you feel like a million bucks and they're introducing you to people and you got your guide, right, into this place of total, a place of healing and flourishing that can happen. I think we could do it. I think we could. Here awesome. we, here's this clip. So those are the graduates. Those are the graduates in the recovery program. That's heaven on earth stuff right there. Mm. You can't deny that Christ is real when you meet them and see what Christ has done in their life and hear their story. It is a powerful testimony to a watching world that wants to know, is this Jesus thing real? And they see this and they can't deny it. That's what I know. I really want to hear about the new project, but one more question first. Sure. When you deal with, you're interfacing with city officials, Mm -hmm. and do they see this and they're like, this is amazing. Do they kind of 
No, they choose not to see. Like, what impact does that have in, in that sphere there? My general sense are that people are making their way in the world, and they want they know they have a general sense when things are not good, and they want things to be right, and so they're they're always looking for like what are the things that are working, mm-hmm. and especially folks that care about the community enough to try and get into elected office, they they want to see what works, and so when they see things like this, or they interface, the, especially when they interface with our staff because we're often working with the EMTs and the fire department and the police department, things like this. And uh, they see how our staff treat people, or even like at our memorials. You know, we memorialize five to ten people every quarter that pass away on the streets or in those housing for solutions. Uh, we memorialize them, and they see the love that our team has. Mm. And the freedom that people that are staying with us have to, to voice to share themselves, too, and their grief, mm-hmm. uh, having lost a friend. And they see that sort of stuff, and they're like, even if I don't believe in this Jesus thing, I know that is good. Mm-hmm. And it softens them, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, quite a bit. And I've, I've had people tell me, like, why? I mean, they, you guys, why do you do this? I mean, you seem to love it. I see these people, I don't want anything to do with it. This is a, a higher up. And uh, I'm like, honestly, it's because Jesus first loved us, we can't help but love those folks. Mm. And they're like, well, I don't know about the whole Jesus thing, but it's so good what you're doing. I'm going to have my wife and kids volunteer with you. Mm. And so they see the fruit, mm. and they can't deny it. And so they, they're more willing to explore. Mm. And, and, uh, and so there's a, a real soft spot in our, the halls of government for the mission and the work that we do. Yeah. And that's a, a gift, I think. And it's a testimony to the staff really working hard to, to do well in those relationships and work with integrity and go the extra mile, mm-hmm. uh, which, frankly, many people can't do that unless the Holy Spirit's in there. Right. Well, tell us about the new project. What's happening? Yeah, I okay. Made... So, and if any, any of these slides are helpful, tell me. I'll let you know. Okay. So, of the folks that we serve... We're seeing a lot of trends, and some of the sad, more sad trends are we're seeing a lot more seniors falling into homelessness. And seniors need a different level of case management that's helpful. They need case managers that have relationships with senior centers and adult living homes and, uh, and have connections with the hospital for the medically fragile and things like this. And so when you're putting a senior next to someone who's coming down off meth, who's younger, it's not always the best thing. And so... We want to have a solution for seniors and for the medically fragile. We're also seeing a lot more families showing up in minivans at 8 p.m. on a Friday night, and there's nothing open except the mission. And we've got two rooms at base camp that can host a family, but it's not ideal. We don't want to have, uh, you know, just little kids running around. There's some folks that are rough around the edges. and you, you, It's ideal to have a space where those kids feel really safe and don't have to be afraid. I mean, I remember going to the mission when I was 8 years old, to have a meal. I was scared. My dad had me down there and they were serving me up at the, the counter there and all these rough looking folks, you know, as an eight year old is how I saw it. And well then I looked to the, the wall and I saw yeah. all the Dale donuts. I'm like, wait a minute, being homeless is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> all the free donuts you can eat. But uh, but I remember sitting down and and realizing, oh these are people, you know, and it changed my perspective. Uh, as they're talking to me and telling me to stay in school and stuff. And 
So I think that, that for families, they need a little more separation so to, from that sort of scene. Because it can, it can get kind of scary at times if somebody's yelling, it's scary. And uh, it doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. <clears throat> and so something for families. We're seeing a lot of folks that are working as well, that have jobs that have come into homelessness, have a space with people that have similar motivations where they can work together and continue to you know, keep working and save up first and last and that sort of thing. And frankly, the mental health is off the charts. Pandemic didn't help it. There's a lot of people with serious mental health stuff going on that need the specialized intervention and the place to, to settle and not get, you know, that has the, the trained staff that can really engage that well. And so we're seeing this. We're seeing the numbers. We're turning people away from base camp due to capacity constraints. We need more square footage. And base camp, too, is... is only there through June of 2024 that it, it ends, the lease ends. And so the reason we got the lease and we were able to go there without too much public pushback is because there's no public process because it's under an emergency status of the pandemic. So we mm. got in there. So it helped in one way, huh? It did help in, in one way. <laughs> but man, that place closes. you got 200 people on the street. Our community is going to be in a rough spot, let alone the folks that you know, need this kind of serious help. And so we've been working the last couple of years now, doing all the planning, doing all the, starting the fundraising process to build a whole new facility that can accommodate those special groups. Uh, we're going to call them micro-shelters. So they're basically programs or shelters within a shelter. So the micro-shelters I've entered, plus, plus the base camp operation that's currently existing, to be able to bring that into, plus overflow during severe weather events of up to 100 people. So we need a facility that can accommodate a max of 400 people. That's twice what we have now at base camp. As well as we want to fill out that restoration tier in a deeper way to where when you graduate that recovery program, you are guaranteed a job. Felony background, doesn't matter. You're guaranteed a job. And so we want to have three storefronts that are operating businesses, small businesses, that you can step into. Now, the businesses this year is our year determining what those businesses are going to be. I'm kind of partial to electric bicycles. <laughs> like being able to modify an electric, or your regular bike and make it electric, it's really cool stuff out there. It's yeah. a perpetual, you know, interesting technology that will always be improving. Um, but things like, you know, a miniature donut shop where... Maybe you don't have your license, but you can be the courier, and you can take those mini donuts to your, your board meeting. They'll all be free that first month. We'll, you know, we're going to hook you, like good dealers do. We're going to hook you on those donuts, and then you can order them, and our folks can bicycle them over, and you got your fresh donuts with all sorts of you know, 100 different types of toppings. It'll be pretty cool. Um, we have these kinds of ideas floating around. We've got to put business plans together to make it all, all uh, work well. But and also have staff that are dedicated, like their sole purpose is getting you jobs. And they're building relationships with local companies that have the, the bandwidth to absorb some folks to, to get started in their careers. And you've got the full support of the mission case management there to, to ensure that that person's going to be in a good space. And even if there's little bumps in the road, we're all working together as a team to, to keep that person employed and really moving forward and stabilizing even further with, with workplace development type of opportunities. 
So how do we do that? Do you want to pull up this picture? This one? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll pull up this one for now. This is the, the new facility that we're proposing. And it's five stories. It's actually located, um, if you see here, where the main mission building, you see the cross street there of Holly Street and F Street. F Street kind of goes up and to the right on the screen. Holly Street comes from the bottom, kind of northwest. Uh, and that, the thick gold line there, that's the main mission building. We're looking to take that down and build out all the way to the sidewalks and go up five stories. So that building currently is 15,000 square feet. This new building uh, is 15, or 75,000 square feet wow. of space. This is going to be a game changer for this community when it comes to homelessness. A game changer. And it's going to, I mean, this will be impacting homelessness for decades to come. And we've been at it 100 years already, but this is going to take us through the next 100 we see. And meeting those needs and being flexible enough, you know, if, if needs change, maybe there's something happens where seniors are getting places to live easier. They don't need to stay with us as much. Maybe we're finding another subgroup of people that maybe as veterans or these kinds of things that, you know, they need a little more specialized care. We can provide that for them. This will have all the medical supports that we currently partner with agencies on, but it'll have three examination rooms. It'll be... Uh, Multi-purpose. We're going to have our chapel in there. We haven't had a chapel at base camp. We've been doing little Bible studies and worship times there, but it's not the same as having the full-on chapel. It's going to have that back. Uh, uh, this this will be one of those things where people who come to town and they say, "How do you treat your poor?" They're going to point to this and mm-hmm. say, "This is how we treat our poor," and it's going to align with the two thousand verses in the Bible that talk about God's care and concern for the poor. Right? Mm. It's going to align with that and. And again, it'll be that testimony to a watching world that wonders, is this Jesus real? Mm. So is it, it's, did you pass all the permitting steps? It's a go? Or yeah, so there's a lot of okay. stages in a, yeah. in a We're the development of something time, like though, this. Okay, so, so I'll yeah. be quick. Yes, the big one was, I mean, there's design review, there's different things. The big one is the land use permit. We want to do, you're not allowed to have more than 200 people in a building related to homelessness. We're going for 400, so we had to make a strong case for 400 and the efficiencies that one facility allows. We can serve way more people uh, if we have a facility like this and the efficiencies that come with that. So one's the security, one roof, the, the, uh, the staffing, all the things that would go into this makes it so we can reach far more people. So land use got passed just uh, two or three months ago, probably three months ago. That was the big hurdle. Um, building permit stuff is in. We saved, by getting that in by August 7th, we saved probably 20% on the cost of the building because if we got in after that, all the rules changed for the envelope of the building and the, the ability to use natural gas or not. These oh. kinds of things, it would have cost way more. But also, I mean, this project started out at about $18 million is what it's going to cost us. Now it's $23 million with all the escalation of prices and materials and the pandemic cost stuff. Like, so we're like, no, we've got to raise so much more. Because we're privately funded, right? Like, this is, this is a work of the church. And some folks aren't believers, but see the fruit and want to help and have been. But ultimately, this is believers stepping up and being open-handed to say, we want to be a part of seeing lives changed like this. And so... How could we give? Where do we, if we want to give to this project, what do we do? So give to this project? Did I yeah. give you a slide for that? I don't know. Looks like get on there. I guess we're not giving. He didn't <laughs> give a slide. So I had one. I don't know. Uh, Anyhow. 
Um, no, how to support it. I mean, there's a lot of ways, of course. And, and chief among them is praying for this thing. This has got to be a God thing. Mm-hmm. Unless the Lord builds this house. You pray for this. You pray for me. I got a twitchy eye from this little project. <laughs> pray for me in this. Uh, pray for the people that are on the street that can't access this now, that are in suffering places that are dying. Pray, pray, pray. And then, of course, the financial fuel, right? How do, you, how do you make a project like this get there? We've raised, I think, over $12 million thus far. We've got a few other things in the pipeline with grants and whatnot we're trying to get uh, to, to pull this off. We've just started the public portion of the campaign, so you'll see, you'll see Raphael over here on the side of buses. Yeah. Uh, right? You'll see commercials on Comcast. You'll, like, we're doing a full-core press. The whole community is going to know about this project. Um, and then, and if you want to give personally to this thing, the easiest way, of course, is to hop on our website. But, but if you want to be creative with it, too, like we've had people say, you know what, I'm selling a business or I'm selling uh, a house. I'd much rather give the capital gains to you guys than the government. Uh, there's ways to really put a dent in this project and make it happen. And so if you, if you're, if you have a wealth event or things like this, we need about $9 million dollars. To, to top this thing off. And so it feels like a heavy lift, and it is a heavy lift. Uh, and it's one of those things like, well, I mean, I stress about this stuff, but at the end of the day, the Lord's got it. These are his people that he's going to care for, that he cares about. So we trust that, and we continue to, to push forward. And so much so that we're doing the ceremonial groundbreaking next month. Yeah. Golden shovels and the, the hats and yeah. the speeches and all that stuff happening next month, and uh, we're, something's going up there. Yes. <laughs> and my prayer is that, because that's going to have the most impact in this community for, for eternity, yeah. frankly. Well, Pastor Mark got your website, your slide. Oh, so thank he you. saved your thank fundraising you, day. You saved my bacon. Uh, Go to the Lighthouse. Uh, oh, actually, yeah, lighthousebuilds.org is right. the, the website that unpacks everything I just shared on a deeper level. You can see the pictures and everything. And the stories that that will happen. So lighthousebuilds.org. And if you want to be a part of what the, the 2,500 people we're still reaching right now that we continue to need to, like this is above and beyond what you already give. <laughs> like we need both to continue. And so thelighthousemission.org is where you can learn more about all those programs that we're mm-hmm. currently up to. Well, we're over time, so I want to wrap Sorry. up. But here, no, no, I no, we could keep going. But, um, we could talk all day. What I want to do to wrap up, I was going to do this, and I thought, no, I felt the Lord say, have Hans do it. It's easy to think the people out there on the street are the hurting people, and they need the gospel, and we, and we can miss us. So give us, in this room, just, share, just present how someone can trust Christ in this moment. Trust Christ in this yeah, moment? Well, like, right, if someone needs that same, just give a little gospel yeah. right, a call right now, if you would. You know, I see a lot of hurting people in the world. And it isn't just, like you said, the folks in the street. It's our volunteers that come in that have a child that's addicted or, or have, you know, lost the things that matter to them. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. I see the people that drop off large sums of money to help get a project like this built that are suffering too. And... Everyone is seeking something. And 
I'll make the case that politics isn't going to save us. Medicine's not going to save us. The pandemic told us that. Right? That romantic relationship's not going to save us. It's Christ and him crucified for our sins, the hope of eternal life. That's what's going to save us. So if that's the place you're at, if you've heard the stories that I've shared about people and the pain and the need, if you're in that place on some level, I encourage you, pull a pastor aside. Pull someone here that you see. Right? We're all priests, as one of the songs said. We're all priests of the kingdom. Pull someone aside and say, I need Christ because I know I can't save myself. Mm-hmm. And I'll pray that right now. Is that yeah, okay? please do. Heavenly Father, we come before you as people that don't have all the answers and we need your mercy. We need your help. We cannot do this on our own. And we're realizing that. I personally am realizing that. There's so many things outside of my control that cause me incredible pain. I need you, Lord. I pray for anybody here to pray this. Lord Jesus Christ, I can't do it. I need you. Even though I don't always know what that means, I just know I can't save myself. I need you. So Lord God, please, Come into my heart right now. Change me. I'm yours. I'm on your altar. Use me as you will. We pray these things in the name of the one who makes this possible, and that is Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's just give Hans a huge hand for being here. Thank you. We're, we're way over time, so if you need to go, go. If you're going to get a kid, go get a kid. If you want to stand here and worship this last song, do it. If you want to come up here and be prayed for, even come right now. But let's just stand, and don't. if you need to get going, get going. But with this song's going to sing, you can stay and worship. You can go. You can come pray. And uh, thank you for being here.